turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. In a surprise move, Turkey backs Sweden's bid to join NATO. But our ultimate goal is to join NATO, and we have 89% of Ukrainians that are in favor of joining NATO. The House Judiciary Committee reveals the FBI working to censor Americans on social media. The government doesn't get to censor speech because they deem it to be, quote, misinformation or disinformation. Janet Yellen says the U.S. might respond to China's tech export curbs. We should have a leadership strong enough, smart enough in Washington and to deal with the issue. This is the Daybreak Insider Podcast. Your first look at today's top stories for Tuesday, July 11th. I'm Mike Scott. On Monday, Turkish President Erdogan announced that he would back Sweden's bid to join NATO and ensure ratification, all but ensuring that the alliance is set to expand once again. It's a pretty big surprise because it was only a few hours ago that we got another bombshell from the Turkish president saying that he actually wasn't going to support letting Sweden into NATO until his country, Turkey, Mm -hmm. was allowed membership uh, in the European Union, something that has been stalled for for quite a while, uh, in part because of democratic backsliding in Turkey. And so uh, that really seemed to to signal that there wasn't going to be a breakthrough at this summit, as so many NATO leaders, including the president of the United States, had hoped, um, and that this was going to drag on even longer. And then suddenly, here in Vilnius, the NATO secretary General sits down, has a meeting with Erdogan, with the leader of Sweden, and they come out shaking hands. And uh, the Secretary General, Jens Stoltenberg, announces that uh, Erdogan is going to allow Sweden's membership to go forward after all. So we don't know exactly what transpired in this meeting, but uh, it had to be transformative um, given how long Turkey has. Uh, stood in opposition to Sweden joining the alliance. The move stunned many in Europe, as Turkey had previously spent months blocking Sweden's application, accusing it of hosting Kurdish militants. As one of NATO's 31 members, Turkey has veto power over any new country joining the group. Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General of NATO, described Turkey's support of Sweden an historic step, but said that there is no clear date when Sweden will officially join the alliance. Sweden and its neighbor Finland both announced their intention to join NATO shortly after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Finland formally joined in April. The two-day NATO summit begins today, and Ukraine will be high on the agenda. President Zelensky is expected to appear at the NATO summit and speak directly with President Biden. 
Reporter Arlette Sains is on the ground in Lithuania and explains what they know about the planned meetings so far. Well, Wolf, President Biden will in fact sit down with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky here at the NATO summit in Vilnius, Lithuania. That's according to a official familiar with the meeting who told me that a little bit earlier this evening. Now, the meeting comes as Zelensky's attendance at the summit had been in question, but it will be one sign of unity as Russia's war in Ukraine is expected to dominate much of the conversation here at the NATO summit. These allies are also expected to discuss a pathway for Ukraine to eventually join NATO. Zelensky has been seeking security guarantees and also wants to have a more clear timeline, a more clear roadmap for how Ukraine could join the alliance. The embattled country has routinely made their intentions to join NATO clear. They have been told that Ukraine cannot join the alliance while they are at war, as it would immediately lead to a direct conflict with a nuclear-armed Russia under Article 5. Yorena Kravchuk is a member of Ukraine's parliament. She weighs in on the reports that suggest that Vladimir Putin has met with Wagner Group leader Prigozhin. Wagner Group is uh, definitely a terrorist organization, and Russia uh, that is sponsoring Wagner Group officially from uh, its budget uh, is a state sponsoring terrorism. Uh, and um, uh, of course, I would say the uh, the best days of Wagner Group uh, in the uh, war uh, of Russia against Ukraine, uh, I would say, are um, in the past. Because they lost a lot of soldiers, and now they are uh, trying to regroup in Belarus, uh, Belarus but uh, it, the numbers are much less. And actually, the uh, Russian Minister of Defense is trying to recruit uh, f- uh, Wagner um, uh, Group uh, soldiers. Well, I can't really name them soldiers because they are actually convicts taken from prison. Uh, for murders, for uh, rapes, and uh, other uh, very serious uh, crimes. Um, But, of course, we will be following what they do, because uh, staying in Belarus means that they can threaten other countries in the regions, which are Baltic states, Lithuania, Latvia, uh, uh, Estonia, and uh, Poland, because Belarus borders uh, with most of these countries. Kravchuk explains what her country hopes to hear at the NATO summit. Uh, well, uh, Ukraine uh, uh, was not expecting to be included in NATO or, or grant uh, NATO membership tomorrow during the summit of Vilnius. Uh, of course, we understand that the war uh, is in the, in the very hot phase, but uh, we would like to have more clarity uh, than just repeating the words that were heard in 2008 uh, when NATO said that the doors are opened and Ukraine might be a member of NATO later on. We want to hear some uh, information, you know, some clarification about security guarantees uh, that uh, Ukraine might have before actually uh, joining NATO later. The Ukrainian diplomat believes that her country does have a lot to offer NATO. And of course, I think it's uh, worth mentioning that um, if Ukraine, when Ukraine becomes a NATO member later on, I cannot tell, of course, uh, the, the time, but it will strengthen the security in the whole region. Because what happens when, uh, you know, Lithuania, Latvia, Poland, uh, Estonia, uh, other countries that are cl- in Eastern Europe are feeling uh, threatened. So they ask for more uh, deployment of American troops. But if Ukraine will be a, a NATO member, our troops will be um, actually, you know, securing uh, the, the, the and, and will be, uh, you know, the first uh, country that will face Russia if it 
you know, ever wants to attack any of the other countries. But of course, now uh, our primary goal is to win this um, this war with Russia. So that's why we're expecting some uh, packages of military help announced in Vilnius. But our ultimate goal is to join NATO. And we have 89% of Ukrainians that are in favor of joining NATO right now. President Putin reportedly has met with mercenary leader Yevgeny Prigozhin after the failed Wagner Group mutiny last month, according to the Kremlin. Prigozhin, who heads the mercenary group, was among 35 Wagner commanders invited to that meeting in Moscow, according to the Kremlin. The Kremlin spokesperson saying that the president of Russia has given an assessment of the Ukraine war effort and the mutiny. The rebellion launched on June 23 and lasted only 24 hours. Relentless rain is flooding the Northeast, where at least one person was killed and many others had to be rescued from cars floating downstream on floodwaters. We get more on this from our Daybreak Insider, Julie Walker. Vermont Governor Phil Scott says swift water rescue teams have been hard at work, especially in the Green Mountains, where at least two towns were inaccessible. We have not seen rain fall like this since Irene, and in some places it will surpass even that. Tropical storm Irene dumped 11 inches on Vermont. New York Governor Kathy Hochul says parts of the Hudson Valley are devastated with roads washed away. Nine inches of rain in this community that they're calling this a 1,000-year event. A woman trying to escape rising floodwaters in her home was killed. Was with her dog, and her fiancé literally saw her swept away. I'm Julie Walker. The House Judiciary Committee is claiming that a batch of subpoenaed documents show clearly that the FBI colluded with the Security Service of Ukraine an agency known to be infiltrated with Russian agents, and routinely sent social media platform requests to take down accounts and posts from users. The committee alleges that the new information shows the FBI's unconstitutional role in enabling censorship and raises questions about the FBI's credibility as the nation's premier law enforcement agency. Meanwhile, the Biden administration has asked a federal appeals court to temporarily block a lower court's order limiting executive branch officials' discussions with social media companies about controversial online postings. The order came in a lawsuit filed by Republican attorneys general in Louisiana and Missouri, which claims the administration censored free speech by threatening to use regulatory action to pressure social media companies to remove what it deemed as misinformation. Republican Senator Eric Schmidt of Missouri joined the Salem Radio Network and explains that the lawsuit he filed against the Biden administration may end up going to the Supreme Court. It was a big win for free speech and the I mean a crushing defeat for censorship. I mean it's got a hold, but it's a very, very positive uh, injunction that, you know, if the government wants to challenge it, they'll go to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. And I'm sure this case may or may not make it. Well, it may or may not make its way all the way to Supreme Court. But this is the most important free speech case in a generation, at least. And so when I was AG, 
filed this lawsuit, Missouri versus Biden, that alleged that a bunch of different Biden administration agencies essentially were suppressing speech, mostly with conservatives. When it comes to the White House allegedly censoring speech, Schmidt says there's now a court order to stop them from doing so. The government doesn't get to censor speech and they can't outsource it either. And so I was proud to bring the lawsuit. And what it says is that these agencies from the CDC to the FDA to DHS to White House officials can no longer do this. I mean, there's an order now on the books preventing them from engaging this kind of activity. And now the Senate will try to hold their feet to the fire. While in years past, liberal groups like the ACLU used to defend free speech, now Schmidt says that it's conservatives who are defending the First Amendment. It's conservatives that are pushing back and saying, wait a minute, we can have a robust debate. We can agree or disagree, but you don't get to censor speech. The government doesn't get to censor speech because they deem it to be, quote, misinformation or disinformation. And now you see these same legacy media outlets like The New York Times who yesterday, you know, had a headline saying this will prevent the government from combating disinformation. I mean, Woodward and Bernstein are dead at this point, right? Like this is just yes. they are now the, the very amendment that protects their ability to write these stories and issue editorials that protects them, they could care less as long, because it's, as long as it's sort of the content that they want or the That's viewpoint so that they genius. want. And they turn now into completely sort of parroting the talking points of the current regime as opposed to defending people to speak their mind. The Missouri senator explains that it's important to allow people to speak their minds. And in order to avoid political violence, it's very important for people to feel like they can go into the town square, speak their mind, express themselves, or the virtual town square now. And so, but the Democrats want to narrow that bandwidth of what's acceptable speech. And so you see, this is the reason why political correctness, people pushing back against that. It's the same reason why they find these kinds of instances of censorship so offensive, because they understand viscerally that we need to be able to express ourselves and the government has no business in regulating that. But yeah, you're right. The legacy media, CNN, New York Times, Washington Post, they're losing their minds because they know that they've been in on this. Whether it was in 2016, whether it was in 2020, whether it was during COVID, they've all been working closely together. They don't like that this could get broken up. This comes as Meta's new app, Threads, quickly found itself embroiled in a censorship controversy after warning users that Donald Trump Jr. may be a source of misinformation. Threads users who tried to follow the younger Trump were greeted with a message that read, Are you sure you want to follow Donald Trump Jr.? This account has repeatedly posted false information that was reviewed by independent fact-checkers or went against our community guidelines. End quote. After some major backlash, Meta's head of communications, Andy Stone, said that it was an error and it shouldn't have happened. However, many users don't buy that such a move is an accident. One thread user posted, quote, It's funny how errors always target conservatives. End quote. A famously progressive ice cream maker may be having second thoughts about its latest attempt at virtue signaling. Daybreak Insider's Rich Thomason has more on this developing story. 
Vermont-based Ben and Jerry's call for what it terms stolen indigenous land to be returned to Native Americans may have backfired because now one of the chiefs of a Vermont tribe says he'd be interested in talking to the company about getting back the land where Ben and Jerry's headquarters is located. Don Stevens tells Newsweek the tribe has always been interested in reclaiming the stewardship of our lands. Rich Thomason reporting. During Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's trip to China, she announced that the U.S. may respond to what she said were unintended consequences of Beijing's curb on exporting metals used in tech. Miles Yu is a senior fellow and director of the China Center at the Hudson Institute. He's also a professor of East Asian and military and naval history at the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis. Mr. Yu joins us on the Daybreak Insider podcast to take a deeper look at the Yellen visit to Beijing. During Yellen's trip, she stated that she was concerned about the Chinese government intimidating U.S. companies in China. In your opinion, how widespread is that intimidation in China? What the Chinese uh, government has done is to impose much harsher regulation uh, on American companies in particular and foreign investment in general. So they have enacted this uh, counter-espionage law targeting specifically foreign companies, particularly those due diligence agencies. Those agencies hired by big corporations to find out the economic reality and the truth about China's investment environment. The Chinese uh, government has uh, really, really struck hard uh, against uh, uh, those companies, uh, uh, the Japanese companies, the Chinese companies, and chief executives. So by definition, I mean, every foreigner in China is uh, under some kind of suspicion. Uh, so that's one thing. Another thing is uh, uh, China needs the West technology, yes, but China also has a, a major political concern because the Chinese uh, uh, society is basically dominated by the Chinese Communist Party. Help us understand this further. What does it mean for the Chinese economy? There are measures restricting people-to-people interaction very, very severe. I mean, for example, the American model of of of, of, of commercial, right? Commercial engagement in China, you have a direct sale. Uh, a lot of people are knocking on your door uh, uh, to sell goods. That will be strictly prohibited. I mean, it's actually it's a definite crime if you do so. So there are many other things, uh, transparency of the uh, China's uh, banking institutions and uh, uh, economic data, so those are very, very big things. So I think that, uh, Secretary Yellen was absolutely right. She pointed out uh, the uh, the Chinese uh, uh, economic operations were controlled by the Chinese government. The Chinese government announced a curb on tech exports. Do you think this is a move that sort of escalates the tension? She told the Chinese repeatedly and emphatically that the United States is going to protect its national security. They're not going to, we're not going to compromise our national security for some uh, 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 immediate expedient uh, economic uh, gain with China because China used the economic engagement with the United States uh, by stealing a lot of American trade secrets and intellectual property rights. And we have been a sucker for decades. 
so that's why uh, uh, I think her main point to the Chinese counterparts uh, uh, was that we're going to put sanction uh, 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 on you, and we're going to basically keep all the tariffs, keep the extra control. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we're not going to have a, a targeted engagement with you. Uh, so this is the the argument of uh, uh, de-risking versus uh, decoupling. There's a lot being said about the sluggish Chinese economy in recent months and the implosion of its local and national real estate markets. Can the U.S. leverage that in any way? We could. The Chinese economy is not a little bit sluggish. It's terribly sluggish. It's basically in shambles. Uh, and that's a phrase that I would like to use because uh, there's some structure. You mentioned about the real estate market uh, collapse. That is a big deal because China's development model has always been um, uh, using this seemingly um, endless state fi- uh, financing, uh, very ir- irresponsible, some of the very risky um, uh, housing markets, uh, housing projects, and some other major uh, uh, infrastructure projects with very little economic uh, uh, profitability. So now, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, that uh, disastrous policy has come, has caused the, you know, the ultimate end, which is uh, uh, the collapse of the housing market and along with it, the financial institutions. And you have a credit crunch. Uh, not only that, local government is in deep debt. China's uh, uh, debt is phenomenal and mind-boggling. So, and with that, consumers' confidence, uh, and also plus near three years of uh, uh, draconian zero COVID lockdowns. So millions of businesses were, were, were closed. Now, you mentioned the COVID lockdowns. How has that affected China's internal and external economies? Uh, that's why the unemployment rate in China is skyrocketing. And Chinese state statistics uh, bureau uh, has openly acknowledged that just the youth unemployment, the most productive uh, group of China's population, the youth unemployment is 20%. That's almost certainly an underestimate. So you think about that. So this country is in big trouble. Um, so you cannot stimulate the uh, domestic consumption because people are running out of money. On the other hand, uh, uh, China uh, has enacted a whole bunch of uh, a very, very unfair and tough laws and regulations that basically send the chill through the spines of the foreign uh, executives. So you you have a reduced foreign investment. So it's basically a double whammy on Chinese economy. So I think China's economy is a big trouble. Turning to the U.S., a lot of people are concerned about how Chinese officials and CCP-backed companies are buying farmland in the U.S. How concerned should we be? On surface, uh, it looks like a, just like a, a regular commercial transaction. But keep in mind, China is a communist country. It's a non-market economy. All major economic uh, operations has to be compliant with Chinese intelligence espionage laws. In other words, if the state wants you to cooperate with China uh, uh, for geopolitical and espionage purposes, you have no choice. That's why there's a buying of the land uh, in America right next to critical, sensitive installations, particularly military installations, uh, is very troubling. So um, 
so this is the this is the problem. This is systemic problem between U.S. and Chinese economic engagement, because you don't know what kind of economic uh, transaction is actually driven and by the Chinese uh, communist government. You don't know what is legitimate. So uh, on the cautious side, that's why so many uh, uh, states, local government are considering banning uh, buying American land properties by foreign nationals. So, but that is going to be a challenge in the court. So that's why Congress, in my view, has to take action to enact a whole bunch of legislature to deal with the China threat with absolute seriousness and comprehensive uh, legislation. Mr. Yu, in your opinion, what should people understand about the U.S.-Chinese relationship? I think one of the most important things for us to understand that the Chinese economic activities, uh, they're always trying to take advantage of Americans' open society and uh, uh, try to get away with all kinds of uh, you know, um, illegal and illicit uh, uh, economic and trade practices, uh, number one. Um, for example, I mean, if you go on Amazon.com, about 70% of like, all the sellers in Amazon are from China. The reason they could do that is because we don't have any regulation to deal with this, and so a huge amount of Chinese sellers can actually evade American taxation, for example, and they can outbid American uh, manufacturers and sellers. Uh, so uh, that's a huge disadvantage. But then on surface, everything seems to be okay because there's no law against that. On the other hand, we should have some kind of a regulation to protect American uh, manufacturing and American uh, commercial entities. So issues like that, we need to really, really look into. So what's the best way for the U.S. to deal with China economically? That's why economic engagement in China is not just a, a, a principle uh, of fair trade. It also touches on every American's life. Uh, so that's why it's very serious, and we should have a leadership strong enough, smart enough uh, um, in Washington and to deal with the, the issue from a not from the managerial and transactional level, but from a more strategic and holistic uh, uh, perspective. And I hope we, you know, that will be the case. And all I have to say uh, to that is, God bless America. We here at the Daybreak Insider, we'd like to thank Miles for joining us. If, if you want to hear more from Miles Yu, check out his writings at Hudson.org. Or you can order one of his books, OSS in China, Prelude to Cold War and the Dragon's War, Allied Operations and the Fate of China, from Amazon.com. And finally, be careful when texting, because the next time you send that thumbs-up emoji, you may be on the hook for a contract. At least, that's what happened to one man in Canada. Emojis have been changing the game in movies, especially in communication, on your cell phone. Our day-to-day -day conversations full of them, but Constantly. you have to be careful how you use them because they could land you in some serious legal trouble, we learned over the weekend. Uh, a farmer in Canada just had to shell out $82,000 for sending a thumbs-up emoji in response to a text message containing a contract from a man who wanted to buy grain. The buyer sued when he didn't get the grain, and the judge ruled in his favor, saying that that thumbs-up emoji is a form of agreeing to terms of the contract that was sent. Jesse Weber is a legal analyst and says that rulings like this one aren't just happening in Canada. 
You know, I look at this case and we've seen things like in Israel and we're actually seeing it a little bit here in the United States. The thing that makes this case um, like kind of like a unique way of looking at it and kind of like a model is the reason the judge accepted the thumbs up as a way of acceptance of this contract is because he looked at the past relationship between the buyer and the seller. And whenever they had a contract or an agreement to sell wheat, there were these very short responses like, yep, okay, sounds good. And we're living in a world right now where our language is changing. A lot of us are communicating and confirming things based on emoji. So he said that that thumbs up is a, just a very another shorthand way of confirming an agreement. So it might get complicated down the road when you have emojis they're not so clear so i think it's going to be a little bit of a complicated issue but it's also really interesting from a legal point of view because this is how we're communicating with each other and courts are now seeing that the judge in the case admits that the case was quite unique but stressed that the courts should now shy away from adopting and adjusting to technology Subscribe to the Daybreak Insider Podcast at Apple or Google Podcast, Spotify, or SalemPodcastNetwork.com. Get our companion Daybreak Insider newsletter each morning at DaybreakInsider.com. Ongoing coverage of breaking news and commentary at SRNNews.com and TownHall.com. Thanks for starting your day with us. I'm Mike Scott. 